Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Sixteen, Part Two. July twenty-second. Ship in bad position in newly frozen lane with bow and stern jammed against heavy flows. Heavy strain with much creaking and groaning. 8 a.m. Called all hands to stations for sledges, and made final preparations for abandoning ship. Allotted special duties to several hands to facilitate quickness in getting clear, should ship be crushed. Am afraid the ship's back will be broken if the pressure continues, but cannot relieve her. 2 p.m. Ship lying easier. Poured sulfuric acid on the ice astern in hopes of rotting crack and relieving pressure on stern post, but unsuccessfully. Very heavy pressure on and around ship, taking strain fore and aft and on starboard quarter. Ship jumping and straining and listing badly. 10 p.m. Ship has crushed her way into new ice on starboard side and slewed aslant lane with stern post clear of land ice. 12 p.m. Ship is in safer position. Lanes opening in every direction. July 23rd. Caught glimpse of Coleman Island through haze. Position of ship south 14 degrees east. True. 80 miles off Coleman Island. Pressure continued intermittently throughout the day and night, with occasional very heavy squeezes to the ship, which made timbers crack and groan. The ship's stern is now in a more or less soft bed, formed of recently frozen ice of about one foot in thickness. I thank God that we have been spared through this fearful nightmare. I shall never forget the concertina motions of the ship during yesterday's and Wednesday's fore-and-aft nips. July 24th. Compared with previous days, this is a quiet one. The lanes have been opening and closing, and occasionally the ship gets a nasty squeeze against the solid flow on our starboard quarter. The more lanes that open, the better, as they form springs, when covered with thin ice, which makes to a thickness of three or four inches in a few hours, between the solid and heavier flows and fields. Surely we have been guided by the hands of Providence to have come in heavy grinding pack for over two hundred miles, geographical, skirting the ice-bound western shore, around and to the north of Franklin Island, and now into what appears a clear path through the open sea. In view of our precarious position and the lives of men in jeopardy, I sent this evening an aerogram to His Majesty King George, asking for a relief ship. I hope the wireless gets through. I have sent this message after much consideration, and know that in the event of our non-arrival in New Zealand on the specified date, November 1st, a relief ship will be sent to aid the Southern Party. July 25th. Very heavy pressure about the ship. During the early hours a large field on the port quarter came charging up, and on meeting our flow tossed up a ridge from ten to fifteen feet high. The blocks of ice as they broke off crumbled and piled over each other to the accompaniment of a thunderous roar. Throughout the day the pressure continued, the flows alternately opening and closing, and the ship creaking and groaning during the nips between flows. August 4 for nine days we have had southerly winds, and the last four we have experienced howling blizzards. I am sick of the sound of the infernal wind. Din, 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 and darkness. 
We should have seen the sun to-day, but a bank of cumulus effectually hid him, although the daylight is a never-ending joy. August 6. The wind moderated towards 6 a.m., and about breakfast time, with a clear atmosphere, the land from near Cape Cotter to Cape Adair was visible. What a day of delights! After four days of thick weather, we find ourselves in sight of Cape Adair in a position about forty-five miles east of Possession Isles. In this time, we have been set one hundred miles. Good going. Mount Sabine, the first land seen by us when coming south, lies away to the westward, forming the highest peak, ten thousand feet, of a majestic range of mountains covered in eternal snow. Due west we can see the Possession Islands, lying under the stupendous bluff of Cape Downshire, which shows large patches of black rock. The land slopes down to the northwest of Cape Downshire, and rises again into the high peninsula about Cape Adair. We felt excited, this morning, in anticipation of seeing the sun, which rose about 9.30, local time. It was a glorious, joyful sight. We drank to something, and with very light hearts gave cheers for the sun. August 9. Donnelly got to work on the rudder again. It is a long job, cutting through the iron sheathing plates of the rudder, and not too safe at present, as the ice is treacherous. Hook says that the conditions are normal now. I wish for his sake that he could get through. He is a good sportsman, and keeps on trying, although I am convinced he has little hope with his inadequate aerial. August 10th. The ship's position is lateral 17 degrees 40 minutes south, 40 miles north, 29 degrees east of Cape Adair. The distance drifted from August 2 to 6 was 100 miles, and from the 6th to the 10th, 88 miles. August 12th. By observation and bearings of land, we are 45 miles northeast of Cape Adair, in lateral 70 degrees, 42 seconds south. This position is a little to the eastward of the position on the 10th. The bearings as laid off on a small-scale chart of mnemonic projection are very inaccurate, and here we are handicapped, as our chronometers have lost all regularity. Donnelly and Grade are having quite a job with the iron platings on the rudder, but should finish the cutting tomorrow. A jury rudder is nearly completed. This afternoon we mixed some concrete for the lower part, and had to use boiling water, as the water froze in the mixing. The carpenter has made a good job of the rudder, although he's had to construct it on the quarter-deck in low temperatures and exposed to biting blasts. August 16th. We are backing and filling about forty miles northeast of Cape Adair. This is where we expected to have made much mileage. However, we cannot grumble and must be patient. There was much mirage to the northward, and from the crow's nest a distinct appearance of open water could be seen stretching from north-northwest to northeast. August 17th. A glorious day. Land is distinctly visible, and to the northward the black fringe of water sky over the horizon hangs continuously. Hook heard Macquarie Island speaking Hobart. The message heard was the finish of the weather reports. We've hopes now of news in the near future. August 23. Saw the land in the vicinity of Cape North. To the south-southwest, the white cliffs and peaks of the inland ranges were very distinct, and away in the distance to the southwest could be seen a low stretch of undulating land. At times, Mount Sabine was visible through the gloom. The latitude is 69 degrees, 44 and a half minutes south. We are fifty-eight miles north, forty miles east of Cape North. August 24th. We lifted the rudder out of the ice and placed it clear of the stern, athwart the fore-and-aft line of the ship. We had quite a job with it, weight four-and-a-half tons, 
using treble and double-sheaved blocks purchase, but with the endless chain tackle from the engine-room and plenty of beef and leverage we dragged it clear. All the pintles are gone at the forepart of the rudder. It is a clean break and bears witness to the terrific force exerted on the ship during the nip. I am glad to see the rudder up on the ice and clear of the propeller. The blade itself, which is solid oak, and sheathed on two sides and after part half-way down with three-quarter inch iron plating, is undamaged, save for the broken pintles. The twisted portion is in the rudder trunk. August 25th, 11 p.m. Hook has just been in with the good tidings that he has heard Macquarie in the Bluff, New Zealand, sending their rudder reports and exchanging signals. Can this mean that they have heard our recent signals and are trying to get us now? Our motor has been out of order. August 26th. The carpenter has finished the jury rudder and is now at work on the lower end of the rudder truck, where the rudder burst into the stern timbers. We are lucky in having this opportunity to repair these minor damages, which might prove serious in a seaway. August 31st, 6.30 a.m. Very loud pressure noises to the southeast. I went aloft after breakfast and had the pleasure of seeing many open lanes in all directions. The lanes of yesterday are frozen over, showing what little chance there is of a general and continued break-up of the ice until the temperature rises. Land was visible, but far too distant for even approximate bearings. The berg still hangs to the northwest of the ship. We seem to have pivoted outwards from the land. We cannot get out of this too quickly, and although everyone has plenty of work and is cheerful, the uselessness of the ship in her present position palls. September 5th. The mizzen wireless mast came down in a raging blizzard today. In the forenoon I managed to crawl to windward on the top of the bridge-house, and under the lee of the chart-house watched the mast bending over with the wind and swaying like the branch of a tree. But after the aerial had stood throughout the winter, I hardly thought the mast would carry away. Luckily, as it is dangerous to life to be on deck in this weather—food is brought from the galley and relays through blinding drift and over big heaps of snow—no one was about when the mast carried away. September 8th. This is dull, miserable weather. Blow, snow, and calm for an hour or two. Sometimes it blows in this neighborhood without snow, and sometimes with. This seems to be the only difference. I have two patients now, Larkman and Muggridge. Larkman was frostbitten on the great and second toes of the left foot some time ago, and has so far taken little notice of them. Now they are causing him some alarm as gangrene has set in. Muggridge is suffering from an intermittent rash, with red inflamed skin and large short-lived blisters. I don't know what the deuce it is, but the nearest description to it in a materia medica, etc., is pemphigus, so pemphigus it is, and he has been tonicked and massaged. September 9th. This is the first day for a long time that we have registered a minimum temperature above zero for the twenty-four hours. It is pleasant to think that from noon to noon throughout the night the temperature never fell below plus four degrees, twenty-eight degrees frost, and with the increase of daylight it makes one feel that summer really is approaching. September 13th. All around the northern horizon there is the appearance of an open water sky, but around the ship the prospect is dreary. The sun rose at 6.20 a.m. and set at 5.25 p.m. Ship's time, 11 hours, 5 minutes of sunlight and 17 hours light, 3 hours twilight morning and evening. The carpenter is dismantling the taffrail, to facilitate the landing, and if necessary, the boarding of the jury rudder, and will construct a temporary, removable rail. September 16th. 
There has been much mirage all around the horizon, and to the eastward through south to southwest heavy frost smoke has been rising. Over the northern horizon a low bank of white fog hangs as though over the sea. I do not like these continued low temperatures. I am beginning to have doubts as to our release, until the sun starts to rot the ice. September 17th. This is the anniversary of our departure from London. There are only four of the original eleven on board. Larkman, Ninnis, Morger, and I. Much has happened since Friday, September 18, 1914, and I can recall the scene as we passed down the Thames with submarines and cruisers in commission and bent on business crossing our course. I can also remember the regret at leaving it all and the consequent fed-upness. September 21st. The sun is making rapid progress south, and we have had today over seventeen hours light and twelve hours sunlight. Oh, for a release! The monotony and worry of our helpless position is deadly. I suppose Shackleton and his party will have started depot-laying now, and will be full of hopes for the future. I wonder whether the Endurance wintered in the ice or went north. I cannot help thinking that if she wintered in the Weddell Sea she will be worse off than the Aurora. What a lot we have to look for in the next six months. News of Shackleton and the Endurance, the party at Cape Evans, and the war. September 22nd. Latitude 69 degrees 12 minutes south, longitude 165 degrees 0 minutes east. Sturge Island, Balleny Group, is bearing north, true, 90 miles distant. Light northwest airs with clear, fine weather. Sighted Sturge Island in the morning, bearing due north of us and appearing like a faint low shadow on the horizon. It is good to get a good landmark for fixing positions again, and it is good to see that we are making northerly progress, however small. Since breaking away from Cape Evans, we have drifted roughly 750 miles around islands and past formidable obstacles, a wonderful drift. It is good to think that it has not been in vain, and that the knowledge of the set and drill of the pack will be a valuable addition to the sum of human knowledge. The distance from Cape Evans to our present position is 705 miles, geographical. September 27th. The temperature in my room last night was round about zero, rather chilly, but warm enough under the blankets. Hook has dismantled his wireless gear. He feels rather sick about not getting communication, although he does not show it. September 30th. Ninnis has been busy now for the week on the construction of a new tractor. He's building the body and will assemble the motor in the four tween decks, where it can be lashed securely when we are released from the ice. I can see leads of open water from the masthead, but we are still held firmly. How long? October 7th. As time wears on, the possibility of getting back to the barrier to land a party deserves consideration. If we do not get clear until late in the season, we will have to turn south first, although we have no anchors and little moorings, no rudder and a short supply of coal. To leave a party on the barrier would make us very short-handed. Still, it can be done, and anything is preferable to the delay in assisting the people at Cape Evans. At 5 a.m. a beautiful perihelion formed around the sun. The sight so impressed the boatswain that he roused me out to see it. During the month of October the aurora drifted uneventfully. Stenhouse mentions that there was often an appearance of open water on the northern and eastern horizon but anxious eyes were strained in vain for indications that the day of the ship's release was near at hand. Hook had the wireless plant running again and was trying daily to get into touch with Macquarie Island, now about 850 miles distant. The request for a release ship 
was to be renewed if communication could be established, for by this time, if all had gone well with the endurance, the overland party from the Weldale Sea would have been starting. There was considerable movement of the ice towards the end of the month, lanes opening and closing, but the flow, some acres in area, into which the aurora was frozen, remained firm until the early days of November. The cracks appeared close to the ship, due apparently to heavy drift causing the flow to sink. The temperatures were higher now, under the influence of the sun, and the ice was softer. Thawing was causing discomfort in the quarters aboard. The position on November 12th was reckoned to be latitude 66 degrees 49 minutes south, longitude 155 degrees 17 minutes 45 seconds east. Stenhouse made a sounding on November 17th, in latitude 66 degrees 40 minutes south, longitude 154 degrees 45 minutes east, and found bottom at 194 fathoms. The bottom sample was mud and a few small stones. The sounding line showed a fairly strong undercurrent to the northwest. We panned out some of the mud, says Stenhouse, and in the remaining grid found several specks of gold. Two days later the trend of the current was southeasterly. There was a pronounced thaw on the 22nd. The cabins were in a dripping state, and recently falling snow was running off the ship in little streams. All hands were delighted, for the present discomfort offered promise of an early break-up of the pack. November 23rd. At 3 a.m., Young Island, Balleny Group, was seen bearing north 54 degrees east, true. The island, which showed up clearly on the horizon, under a heavy stratus-covered sky, appeared to be very far distant. By latitude at noon, we are in 66 degrees, 26 minutes south. As this is the charted latitude of Peak Foreman, Young Island, the bearing does not agree. Land was seen at 8 a.m. bearing south 60 degrees west. True. This, which would appear to be Cape Hudson, loomed up through the mists in the form of a high, bold headland, with low, undulating land stretching away to the south-southeast and to the westward of it. The appearance of this headland has been foretold for the last two days by masses of black fog, but it seems strange that land so high should not have been seen before, as there is little change in the atmospheric conditions. November 24th. Overcast and hazy during forenoon. Cloudy, clear and fine in afternoon and evening. Not a vestige of land can be seen, so Cape Hudson is really Cape Flyaway. This is most weird. All hands saw the headland to the southwest, and some of us sketched it. Now, afternoon, although the sky is beautifully clear to the southwest, nothing can be seen. We cannot have drifted far from yesterday's position. No wonder Wilkes reported land. 9 p.m. A low fringe of land appears on the horizon bearing southwest, but in no way resembles our cape of yesterday. This afternoon we took a cast of the lead through the crack two hundred yards west of the ship, but found no bottom at seven hundred fathoms. An interesting incident on November 26th was the discovery of an emperor penguin rookery. Ninnis and Kavanagh took a long walk to the northwest and found the deserted rookery. The depressions in the ice made by the birds were about eighteen inches long and contained a grayish residue. The rookery was in a hollow surrounded by pressure ridges six feet high. Apparently about twenty birds had been there. No pieces of eggshell were seen, but the petrels and skuas had been there in force and probably would have taken all scraps of this kind. The floes were becoming soft and rotten, and walking was increasingly difficult. Deep pools of slush and water covered with thin snow made traps for the men. 
Stenhouse thought that a stiff blizzard would break up the pack. His anxiety was increasing with the advance of the season, and his log is a record of deep yearning to be free and active again. But the grip of the pack was inexorable. The hands had plenty of work on the aurora, which was being made shipshape after the buffeting of the winter storms. Seals and penguins were seen frequently, and the supply of fresh meat was maintained. The jury rudder was ready to be shipped when the ship was released, but in the meantime it was not being exposed to the attacks of the ice. No appreciable change in our surroundings was the note for December 17. Every day past now reduces our chance of getting out in time to go north for rudder, anchors and coal. If we break out before January 15, we might get north to New Zealand and down to Cape Evans again in time to pick up the parties. After that date, we can only attempt to go south in our crippled state and short of fuel. With only nine days' coal on board, we would have little chance of working through any Ross Sea pack or of getting south at all if we encountered many blizzards. Still, there is a sporting chance, and luck may be with us. Shackleton may be past the pole now. I wish our wireless calls had got through. Christmas Day, with its special dinner and mild festivities, came and passed, and still the ice remained firm. The men were finding some interest in watching the molting of emperor penguins, who were stationed at various points in the neighbourhood of the ship. They had taken station to leeward of hummocks, and appeared to move only when the wind changed or the snow around them had become foul. They covered but a few yards on these journeys, and even then stumbled in their weakness. One emperor was brought on board alive, and the crew were greatly amused to see the bird balancing himself on heels and tail with upturned toes, the position adopted when the egg is resting on the feet during the incubation period. The threat of a stiff blow aroused hopes of release several times, but the blizzard, probably the first Antarctic blizzard that was ever longed for, did not arrive. New Year's Day found Stenhouse and other men just recovering from an attack of snow-blindness, contracted by making an excursion across the floes without snow-goggles. At the end of the first week in January, the ship was in latitude 65 degrees 45 minutes south. The pack was well broken a mile from the ship, and the ice was rolling fast. Under the bows and stern the pools were growing and stretching away in long lanes to the west. A seal came up to blow under the stern on the 6th, proving that there was an opening in the sunken ice there. Stenhouse was economizing in food. No breakfast was served on the ship, and seal or penguin meat was used for at least one of the two meals later in the day. All hands were short of clothing, but Stenhouse was keeping intact the sledging gear intended for the use of the shore party. Strong variable winds on the ninth raised hopes again, and on the morning of the tenth the ice appeared to be well broken from half a mile to a mile distant from the ship in all directions. It seems extraordinary that the ship should be held in an almost unbroken flow of about a mile square, the more so as this patch was completely screwed and broken during the smash in July, and contains many faults. In almost any direction at a distance of half a mile from the ship there are pressure ridges of eight-inch ice piled twenty feet high. It was provident that although so near these ridges were escaped. The middle of January was past, and the aurora lay still in the ice. The period of continuous day was drawing towards its close, and there was an appreciable twilight at midnight. A dark water sky could be seen on the northern horizon. The latitude on January 24th was 65 degrees 39 and a half minutes south. Towards the end of the month, 
Stenhouse ordered a thorough overhaul of the stores and general preparations for a move. The supply of flour and butter was ample. Other stores were running low, and the crew lost no opportunity of capturing seals and penguins. The dailies were travelling to the east-southeast in considerable numbers, but they could not be taken unless they approached the ship closely, owing to the soft condition of the ice. The wireless plant, which had been idle during the month of daylight, had been rigged again, and Hook resumed his calls to Macquarie Island on February 2nd. He listened in vain for any indication that he had been heard. The pack was showing much movement, but the large flow containing the ship remained firm. The break-up of the flow came on February 12th. Strong northeast to southeast winds put the ice in motion and brought a perceptible swell. The ship was making some water, a foretaste of a trouble to come, and all hands spent the day at the pumps, reducing the water from three feet eight and a half inches in the well to twelve inches, in spite of frozen pipes and other difficulties. Work had just finished for the night when the ice broke astern and quickly split in all directions under the influence of the swell. The men managed to save some seal-meat which had been cached in a drift near the gangway. They lost the flagstaff, which had been rigged as a wireless mast out on the floe, but drew in the aerial. The ship was floating now amidst fragments of floe, and bumping considerably in the swell. A fresh southerly wind blew during the night, and the ship started to forge ahead gradually without sail. At 8.30 a.m. on the 13th, Stenhouse set the foresail and foretopmast-taysail, and the aurora moved northward slowly, being brought up occasionally by large flows. Navigation under such conditions, without steam and without a rudder, was exceedingly difficult, but Stenhouse wished if possible to save his small remaining stock of coal until he cleared the pack, so that a quick run might be made to McMurdo Sound. The jury rudder could not be rigged in the pack. The ship was making about three and a half feet of water in the twenty-four hours, a quantity easily kept in check by the pumps. During the 14th, the aurora worked very slowly northward through heavy pack. Occasionally, the yards were backed or an ice anchor put into a flow to help her out of difficult places, but much of the time she steered herself. The jury rudder boom was topped into position in the afternoon, but the rudder was not to be shipped until open pack or open water was reached. The ship was held up all day on the 15th, in latitude 64 degrees, 38 minutes south. Heavy flows barred progress in every direction. Attempts were made to work the ship by trimming sails and warping with ice anchors, but she could not be manoeuvred smartly enough to take advantage of leads that opened and closed. This state of affairs continued throughout the 16th. That night a heavy swell was rolling under the ice, and the ship had a rough time. One pointed flow ten or twelve feet thick was steadily battering, with a three-feet scent, against the starboard side, and fenders only partially deadened to shock. "'It is no use butting against this pack with steam-power,' wrote Stenhouse. "'We would use all our meagre supply of coal in reaching the limit of the ice in sight, and then we would be in a hole, with neither ballast nor fuel. But if this stagnation lasts another week, we will have to raise steam and consume our coal in an endeavour to get into navigable waters.' I am afraid our chances of getting south are very small now. The pack remained close, and on the 21st a heavy swell made the situation dangerous. The ship bumped heavily that night, and fenders were of little avail. With each scent of the swell, the ship would bang her bows on the floe ahead, 
then bounce back and smash into another flow across her stern post. This flow, about six feet thick and one hundred feet across, was eventually split and smashed by the impacts. The pack was jammed close on the twenty-third, when the noon latitude was sixty-four degrees, thirty-six and a half minutes south. The next change was for the worse. The pack loosened on the night of the twenty-fifth, and a heavy northwest swell caused the ship to bump heavily. This state of affairs recurred at intervals in succeeding days. The battering and ramming of the floes increased in the early hours of February twenty-ninth, until it seemed as if some sharp flow or jagged underfoot must go through the ship's hull. At six a.m. we converted a large coir spring into a fender and slipped it under the port quarter, where a pressured flow with twenty to thirty feet underfoot was threatening to knock the propeller and sternpost off altogether. At nine a.m., after pumping ship, the engineer reported a leak in the way of the propeller shaft aft near the sternpost on the port side. The carpenter cut part of the lining and filled the space between the timbers with Stockholm tar, cement, and oakum. He could not get at the actual leak, but his makeshift made a little difference. I am anxious about the propeller. This pack is a dangerous place for a ship now. It seems miraculous that the old barky still floats. The ice opened out a little on March 1st. It was imperative to get the ship out of her dangerous situation quickly, as winter was approaching, and Stenhouse therefore ordered steam to be raised. Next morning he had the spanker gaff rigged over the stern for use as a temporary rudder while in the heavy pack. Steam had been raised to working pressure at 5.15 p.m. on the 2nd, and the Aurora began to work ahead to the westward. Progress was very slow owing to heavy flows and deep underfoots, which necessitated frequent stoppages of the engines. Open water was in sight to the north and northwest the next morning, after a restless night spent among the rocking floes. But progress was very slow. The Aurora went to leeward under the influence of a west-southwest breeze, and steering by means of the yards and a warp anchor was a ticklish business. The ship came to a full stop among heavy flows before noon of the third, and three hours later, after vain attempts to warp ahead by means of ice anchors, Stenhouse had the fires partially drawn, to save coal, and banked. No advance was made on March 4th and 5th. A moderate gale from the east-northeast closed the ice and set it in motion, and the aurora, with banked fires, rolled and bumped heavily. Seventeen bergs were in sight, and one of them was working southwards into the pack and threatening to approach the ship. During the night the engines were turned repeatedly by the action of ice on the propeller blades. All theories about the swell being non-existent in the pack are false, wrote the anxious master. Here we are with a suggestion only of open water sky, and the ship rolling her scuppers under and sitting down bodily on the floes. The ice opened when the wind moderated, and on the afternoon of the 6th the aurora moved northward again. Without a rudder—no jury rudder can yet be used among these swirling, rolling floes—the ship requires a lot of attention. Her head must be pointed between flows by means of ice anchors and warps, or by mooring to a floe and steaming round it. We kept a fairly good course between two bergs to our northward, and made about five miles northing, till, darkness coming on, the men could no longer venture on the floes with safety to fix the anchors. The next three days were full of anxiety. The aurora was held by the ice, and subjected to severe buffeting, while two bergs approached from the north. On the morning of the 10th, the nearest berg was within three cables of the ship. 
but the pack had opened, and by 9.30 a.m. the ship was out of the danger zone and headed north-northeast. The pack continued to open during the afternoon, and the aurora passed through wide stretches of small loose floes and brash. Progress was good until darkness made a stop necessary. The next morning the pack was denser. Stenhouse shipped a preventer jury rudder, the weighted spanker gaff, but could not get steerage way. Broad leads were sighted to the northwest in the afternoon, and the ship got within a quarter of a mile of the nearest lead before being held up by heavy pack. She again bumped severely during the night, and the watch stood by with fenders to ease the more dangerous blows. Early next morning Stenhouse lowered a jury rudder, with steering pennants to drag through the water, and moved north to northwest through heavy pack. He made sixty miles that day on an erratic course, and then spent an anxious night with the ship setting back into the pack and being pounded heavily. Attempts to work forward to an open lead on the morning of the 13th were unsuccessful. Early in the afternoon a little progress was made, with all hands standing by to fend off high ice, and at 4.50 p.m. the aurora cleared the main pack. An hour was spent shipping the jury rudder under the counter, and then the ship moved slowly northward. There was pack still ahead, and the bergs and growlers were a constant menace in the hours of darkness. Some anxious work remained to be done, since bergs and scattered ice extended in all directions, but at 2 p.m. on March 14th the aurora cleared the last belt of pack in latitude 62 degrees, 27.5 minutes south, longitude 157 degrees, 32 minutes east. We spliced the main brace, says Tenhouse, and blew three blasts of farewell to the pack with the whistle. The aurora was not at the end of her troubles, but the voyage up to New Zealand need not be described in detail. Any attempt to reach McMurdo Sound was now out of the question. Stenhouse had a battered, rudderless ship, with only a few tons of coal left in the bunkers, and he struggled northward in heavy weather against persistent adverse winds and head seas. The jury rudder needed constant nursing, and the shortage of coal made it impossible to get the best service from the engines. There were times when the ship could make no progress and fell about helplessly in a confused swell, or lay hove to amid mountainous seas. She was short-handed, and one or two of the men were creating additional difficulties. But Stenhouse displayed throughout fine seamanship and dogged perseverance. He accomplished successfully one of the most difficult voyages on record, in an ocean area notoriously stormy and treacherous. On March 23rd he established wireless communication with Bluff Station, New Zealand, and the next day was in touch with Wellington and Hobart. The naval officer in New Zealand waters offered assistance, and eventually it was arranged that the Otago Harbour board's tug Plucky should meet the Aurora outside Port Chalmers. There were still bad days to be endured. The jury rudder partially carried away and had to be unshipped in a heavy sea. Stenhouse carried on, and in the early morning of April 2nd the Aurora picked up the tug and was taken in tow. She reached Port Chalmers the following morning and was welcomed with the warm hospitality that New Zealand has always shown towards Antarctic explorers. End of chapter 16, part 2